We're going to be in Ephesians today. And I hope you guys are ready to go through the Word. Are you ready? Yeah? Okay, we got some energy. Want to stand up and do some jumping jacks to get ready? Okay, everybody do some finger jumping jacks here, right? Get ready, okay? We're going to have you writing down lots of notes today, and we're going to go through lots of Scripture. And so uh, get ready to study here. Well, we are coming up on that time of year where everyone seems to cook their best food. How many of you have a certain dish you're looking forward to for Christmas? Anyone? Yeah? Certain dish? Well, I am lucky enough that every Christmas morning, my wife, uh, she makes uh, just awesome breakfast, and she makes this thing called a tea ring. It's like a fancy cinnamon roll. It's super good. It's delicious. Uh, the children and I, we have no problem partaking in that. And there's definitely a bit of thanks that's there as we're gobbling it down, right? Um, but the reality is, is I often find that as I'm sitting there eating, and this has been the case my whole life, uh, some of my best childhood memories are connected to food, right? Uh, maybe that's an idol for me, I don't know. Um, but uh, as I sit and I eat these things, I, I, I realize as I'm getting older that I was thankful, uh, but the reality was, was my thankfulness probably would have been increased if I fully understood all that it took to go into that dish and to make it, Right? Uh, same thing with presents. I was always thankful for presents under the tree, but if I fully recognized at that age what my dad had to put in in order to make money in order to buy that present and put it under the tree, I probably would have been a lot more thankful. Often we don't reach the depths of thankfulness because we don't realize everything that's put into those things of which we partake. And I think we can often do this same thing with our Christian walk. Even as Shane was talking about earlier, how often do we think about the fact that our king is coming again to put things to right? And what is our attitude of thankfulness around that? We look at the gospel and we partake of it, but sometimes the measure of thanksgiving probably could be increased if we understood the fullness of what the gospel is and the powerful work the Father has performed in Christ. So that's what we're going to talk about today, the powerful work the Father has performed in Christ. One of my favorite scriptures in all of the Bible, and probably yours as well, is coming up in Ephesians 2. It's Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10. And it says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith. Amen? And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. It is truly one of the most beautiful set of verses in the entire Bible. The Reformation was founded very much on these verses. And it captures the good news of the gospel. But I fear, the longer I walk in Christianity, I fear that we often miss the fact that these verses were not written in a bubble or a vacuum. That before it is text and after it is text. And in looking at that context, we see Paul's thought process that leads him to say these amazing verses. And my hope is today that as we hear Paul's understanding that sets the background for these verses that I very much am looking forward to teaching, that we start to grow in an attitude of thankfulness for the powerful work the Father has performed in Christ. So let's refresh quickly so far what we've seen in Ephesians 1. The first thing that we've seen is he talked about the blessings that came in the heavenlies. And he talked about the fact that those blessings come through Jesus. And we've discussed that the marks of a healthy church, the first one is this, everybody repeat it, Jesus at the core. Say it again, Jesus at the core. Everybody say it again, Jesus at the core. We have to understand this. We have to understand that this is the core of everything that makes up a healthy church. And we moved on from there and we started into the section where Paul talks about thanksgiving and he gives thanks for the church to God. 
And he's basically erupting in thanksgiving because he sees the faith worked out in love of the church body. It's based on the blessings, but it's brought about because Paul heard that the Ephesians are loving one another well and the gospel's worked out in love. And so we start there in verse 15 just to give ourselves a little bit of context and we're going to move through all the way through 23 today. But let's start in verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Let's pause there. Paul prays that the faith worked out in love would not end or be short-lived, that it would continue, and that the eyes of their hearts would be opened to see the fullness of who God is, and that that would impact them in the way that they cared for one another. And so he says that same spirit It was in Jesus, I pray that it's in you, and that it will help you to know the hope to which you're called, your inheritance in the saints, and the power of your resurrection. We went over that last week. You can go back and listen to it online. And while we stopped at this midpoint in verse uh, 20, just so we could properly unpack that prayer, Paul's thought continues from here. There is no period there. He continues. And what he notes is that the power, and really all three of these hopes and dreams are based on this power, is what will bring the church into the fullness of what God wants for them. He says, the great might that God worked out in Christ. And so we as Christians can look to this powerful work of God that the Father has performed in Christ, and we can give thanks this morning. Amen? We can give thanks for the powerful work that the Father has done through Christ. But if we paused here for just a moment to ponder that phrase, the great might that he worked in Christ. I wonder what we would say is that great work. How would we define the great work, the powerful work that he has done? Well, I haven't lived a very long life, but in the life I have lived, and especially over the last 15 years as a Christian and in ministry, what I've I've heard um, makes me hazard a guess that that most evangelical Christians would say the work that Christ has done is contained in this statement. He saved me from my sins and gave me eternal life. Would you agree with that? That's what most evangelicals would say. Now, is this true? Absolutely. That is a great work that Christ has done. Amen? If he didn't save us from our sins and call us to eternal life, we would be dead in our trespasses. That is the core of everything we're about. But I wonder, what does the greater story of Scripture say that this work of the Father towards salvation is? What were the people of God crying out for when they said, save us? Absolutely, they were saying, save us from our sins. Save us from dying and death and bring us into eternal life. But was there more to it? Let's think for a second about the story of Scripture before we even go into the rest of this chapter. This is where you're going to get your pens ready to write down, okay? Y'all ready for this? Y'all ready for this? Okay. How many of you want to do, like, yeah, okay, sorry. All right. Sorry, basketball kicking in, all the sports stuff. All right, here's the first thing we're going to look at. Genesis 128. 
And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And all of you hunters say, Yeah, my life verse right there. And I have dominion over those bucks and over those deer and whatever else it is you shoot, right? Okay? That word subdue is an interesting word. In the Hebrew, it's the word kabosh. And what it means is to conquer. It's a word of warfare. It's not just subdue it like you subdue your garden. It's conquer it and have dominion. That's a kingly word over it, okay? Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And we think, oh, it's so cute. Adam was a gardener, right? Must have been kind of, you know, interesting to see him, you know, troweling the soil and doing all this stuff. No, that's, that's not who Adam was supposed to be. Partially it was because he was supposed to work the garden, but that word keep there, it very much is a word in the Hebrew. It's shamar. It means to protect. And it's a word of warfare. He was not only to work the ground, he was also supposed to be the priest who protected the sanctuary of God known as the Garden of Eden. But then came the serpent, known as Satan, the adversary. We get it from the Hebrew hasatan, the adversary. And the adversary of God came in and he questioned God's trustworthiness and tempted Eve to move her affections from God to herself. You see, she didn't turn to hatred against God. All she did was she moved her affections off of God onto herself. And she and Adam therefore rebelled against God and disobeyed his command and the curse entered mankind. But in the midst of that curse, the God of hope gave us hope. Look at what he said in cursing the serpent, in cursing Hasatan, the chaos monster. Here's what he said. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now the reason I use the NIV here is that in the ESV you'll notice it says he will bruise your head. That's not what the meaning is here. Uh, For most of history, uh, the Jews have stated that it's he will crush the head of the serpent, not bruise. So that's why I use the NIV here. But this is a, a word of warfare. And so God is saying, eventually you, the one who brought in rebellion, you will be destroyed. You will be killed. They will put the kibosh on you. Okay? Well, let's move ahead. Let's look at what they were looking for because from these very verses, mankind started to look forward wondering who that offspring that would crush the head of the serpent is. And he would, become to, uh, he would come to be known as the Mashiach, the Messiah, the one who would come and crush the head of the serpent and bring about the restoration of God's kingdom. Everybody with me so far? You guys got me? Yeah? Do a big no if you're not with me. All right, cool. Genesis 12 comes along just a little while later. And a man named Abram or Avram is called by God to go and establish a people in the land of Canaan. And God calls him and says this to him. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you. And I will make your name great. Remember that. That's very important. Make your name great. So that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Okay? And so God gives this promise to Avram, to Abram, and he says, you are going to be the place from which a blessing comes. And in so doing, what he's stating is that the Messiah, the one that would crush the head of the serpent, will come through the lineage of Abram. 
And that man, that Messiah, would rule in righteousness and justice in restoring the kingdom. And so Israel eventually asked for a king to rule them. And we, looking back with 2020 hindsight, say, oh, what a bunch of terrible people. They had God as their king. But part of why they asked for a king was not just that they wanted to be like the other nations. In their mind, they wanted to hurry up the plan of God and get somebody in place that could be the Messiah, that could be their king and conquer their enemies. And so God promised that through the kings, he would bring about this Messiah. First there was Saul, and then there was David. And look at what he promised to David. This is in 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 through 16. 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 16. He said to David, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He's talking about Solomon here, his his son. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now that moves past Solomon. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he, Solomon, commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house, David, and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever." And so this thread, this idea of a king coming who would crush the head of the enemy of God and therefore the people that were enemies of God's people, this was the theme throughout Scripture. The theme of a God who is at war with the kingdom of darkness is the underlying plot line of Scripture. That's the underlying plot line of Scripture. If you miss that, you are going to be so confused when you read the Bible. Because most of the time, when you open the Bible, in our culture, what you're trained to do is to look for me. Where am I in here? Well, you're going to be sorely mistaken because you're not really in there. You're in there by side effect, so to speak. But this book is about the story of God. And therefore, because it's about God, God has done a work which affects us and draws us to him. But this is the story of God. And so we have to understand that this plot line is at the core and the root of everything in Scripture. For example, look with me at Psalm 89. To understand this theme will help you massively when you read the Psalms. Go to Psalm 89 with me, and we're going to be starting in verse, uh, verse, let's see, where am I? Psalm 89, verse 8. Psalm 89, verse 8. Okay, I got it up on the screen if you don't have a Bible, and we can read through it here. O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty as you are? O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you, you rule the raging of the sea. That's a statement in the Hebrew of saying, you calm the chaos, okay? The Jews very much believed that the sea was the place of evil. That's why they wouldn't go out and have this giant navy, right? Um, That it was chaos. And so he was the one that would calm and order the chaos. He says, when when its waves rise, you still them. You crushed Rahab. And Rahab isn't the the, um, character from the Old Testament story here. Rahab is a god, okay? Little g, lowercase g, god, that was the enemy of the people of Israel. You crushed Rahab like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all that is in it, you have founded them. The north and the south, you've created them. Tabor and Hermon, joyously praise your name. You have a mighty arm, strong as your hand, high your right hand. Now, if you read this and you don't understand that God is God at war, and this is kind of like saying, yeah, God's at war, 
you kind of miss the point, right? You turn it into this nice little thing that you put on a plate and hang on your grandma's wall, and you go, hey, isn't that sweet? It's not sweet. This is like giant smack talk from the Most High, okay? Look at what he says next. Righteousness and justice. Remember those words? We've used them a lot. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. See, he's saying, I am above all. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Blessed are the people who know the festal shout, who walk, O Lord, in light of your face, who exult in your name all the day and in your righteousness are exalted. For you are the glory of their strength. By your favor, our horn, which is a sign of authority, is exalted. For our shield belongs to the Lord, our King, to the Holy One of Israel. See all these discussions about kingship and authority and exaltation. God at war. The call for salvation throughout Scripture is for more than just, hear me there, just salvation from death, sin, and hell. It absolutely is about those things. But it's for more than that. The people of the Bible are calling for a Messiah, an anointed king, to come and restore the order that the chaos of evil has broken. And this background is so important. Right? I, have, I think we have a tendency as Americans to turn it into a fairy tale like watching Tangled or some movie about kings and princesses. Well, that's just old stuff and that's not really what the Bible's about. No, guys, that is the core of the Bible. That God is a king and that he's coming to destroy his enemies and establish his kingdom and his throne based on righteousness and justice. This is so core to what scripture says. And so when Jesus came on the scene, those that were looking for the Messiah looked to Jesus to be that saving Messiah that would crush the head of the serpent, that would restore the order of God's kingdom. Look at what is said here by Andrew. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Mashiach, the Messiah, which means Christ or anointed one. See, they were looking for a king. And this is why everyone was so disappointed by Jesus. He didn't bring down the Roman Empire in one fell swoop. They must be part of Satan's kingdom because they're our enemies. And so the Messiah, he's going to come and destroy. Well, brothers and sisters, this is why we rejoice at Christmas. And honestly, often we don't even know it. We rejoice at Christmas because God sent his son to be king and establish his kingdom, to bring forth a kingdom of shalom and righteousness and justice and to defeat the enemy of his kingdom, who is the prince of darkness. Think with me for a second of some of the songs we've already even sung today. Go tell it on the mountain. What are we telling on the mountain? Tell me the next line. That Jesus Christ is born. Yeah, Jesus, first name, Christ, last name, is born. No, guys, Jesus the Messiah has come. The king is here to destroy the works of darkness. His throne is established. His law is love. Think about these words that we sing every year and we totally miss the meaning of it. Think with me about this section of scripture that we quote all the time around Christmas, Isaiah 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. So all you anti-government folks, 
Think about that one. I'm just going to put that out there, right? Our anti-authoritarian bent in the Pacific Northwest is going to get us into trouble when a government with a king who's in authority actually sits on the throne. Your anti-authority stance ain't going to work anymore, okay? On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Aw, let's glaze that on a plate. Put it in grandma's house. No, guys, the reality is, is that's pretty solid, heavy stuff. You can still glaze it on a plate if you want, but that's serious. So when we say, God, save me, we are not just saying, give me eternal life or save me from my sins. We absolutely are. But, guys, we're being saved from more than just God's wrath against us because we're rebellious. That is true. And these are the starting points that we must begin from. But we're also asking, when we say, God, save me, we are asking to become submitted to him and to his reign within his kingdom and amongst his covenant people. We are asking to be held to account to live lives of righteousness and justice and love by the king who sits on the throne. And so now that I've done the longest introduction in the history of mission, we're going to step into Ephesians and we're going to see a little bit better what Paul's trying to say because of this background. Look with me at Ephesians 19. I know it's the middle of a, a, a sentence here, but we'll start in 19 and we'll re- read through verse 23. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet And gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, one of the reasons I think that we as Protestants, we miss out on what I'm trying to say here is because our festivals and feasts are very simple. We have Christmas and we have Easter. Christmas, we celebrate a baby being born in a manger, right? Yeah, because he's eventually going to go and he's going to be at the cross. And then for one day a year, we focus on the resurrection. But for the rest of the time, we're really focused on the cross, that he died for my sin. Now, that's not bad, but guys, we've got to weigh it. We've got to weigh it and balance it with what Scripture says. One of the things we don't celebrate as Protestants is the Feast of the Ascension. Catholics do. We don't. And so we completely forget about the idea that Jesus raised, ascended, went into heaven. He's seated on a throne right now. We totally forget about that. We live our lives as practical atheists because we think, well, he died, he resurrected, then he went somewhere, and he's going to come back, and until that point, I don't have to worry about it. But the reality is, is he's king right now over his people. And we forget about that. So let's take a look here at what Paul attributes to the working of God, the Father, through Christ. The first thing we see is this. Write this down. God's power raised Christ from the dead. Without this truth, we are absolutely lost. Amen? Amen. We're without hope for all eternity. Because just as Jesus must be at the core of our church, he must also be at the core for each of us individually in our relationship with God the Father. I've been pressing the corporate and communal mentality of the Christian for a long time, not because I'm trying to remove the individual connection to Christ, but because I'm trying to balance the scales. 
We're so far to one side in individualism that we have to get back into the place where we think both individually and communally. In resurrecting, Christ defeated the hold that death and sin had on our lives. It ended the fear that we have that we have to die because of the wrath of God against us for our sin. On the cross, Jesus struck the first fatal blow against the kingdom of darkness, and we await the final blow that will happen when he comes again. And my belief is that in our well-meaning attempt to press the cross, which we should do, we've accidentally omitted the other and created an evangelical church in which forgiveness of sins is emphasized, but transformation or sanctification and holiness is largely forgotten. We think that our Christian walk basically is one and done in the moment we pray the sinner's prayer. Both the death and the resurrection of Jesus must be in view. And dear friends, the Bible is clear that we did not know Christ. If we do not know Christ, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. The Bible is clear that if we haven't called to him and said, save me from the wrath of the Father, that we are dead in our trespasses. And so today, if you're a person who's never cried out to God in that capacity and said, Lord, I need you to save me from my sins, you can do it right where you sit. You can say it right now to the Lord, Lord, save me from my sins. And I would love to talk with you during the second half of worship in the back. Come back and talk with me about what that looks like to start walking as a Christian. That's the beginning point. It has to be there. But then for those of us who've been walking with Christ for a while, the atoning work of the cross is always present and we need to remember it every day. We need to be reminded of the gospel every day. But what that should do is draw us into holiness and sanctification. Because while we are a bol- uh, the Bible says we are both a new creation and being made and transformed into a new creation. Here's one example, 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. Amen for that, right? Now, raise of hands. How many of you feel like a totally new creation? Raise your hands. Well, some of you. Okay, good. I don't. I see the transformation happening, but it's like watching grass grow. Right? I think my belly grows faster than my transformation. Amen. Lord, you made me new, and I feel sometimes like that, but I also need to be transformed. And that's why two, ver- or two chapters earlier in the same letter, Paul says this. He says, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So those of you that raise your hands, don't feel bad. That wasn't the wrong answer, right? It's true. You should feel new. And I'm happy that today, right now, you feel new. That's good. Share it with the rest of us. But most of us were being transformed, right? It's going to take some time. But we can't just omit it. We have to recognize that that's part of the walk. That's part of the gospel is both the justification, being saved from our sins, and the sanctification that we are growing in Christ. And here's the craziest part about Christ's resurrection. Look back there with me at verses 22 and 23. Notice what is not mentioned. What's omitted? In this section right here, any mention of individual salvation is completely omitted from the work of God. That doesn't mean he's removing it. He's just waiting to talk about it until chapter 2. And we're going to talk about it in chapter 2. And you're going to be really happy about that, right? But the reality is, is right here, he's saying before individual salvation is even part of the plan of God, something else had to occur. And that is the enthronement of Christ. That's the next thing we see. 
that God's work, God's powerful work, enthroned Christ in the heavens. God's power enthroned Christ in the heavens. Look at verse 20, the second half, and verse 21. It says, He seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. I love the repetition in Hebrew and in Greek, right? Uh, Because that's how they emphasize something, right? It's kind of like if I beat you in basketball and I said, I beat you, I killed you, I nailed you, you know, you're dead, right? Just over and over again, right? I get it. I get the picture. That's what he's saying here. He's saying, man, I destroyed them. I seated myself above them, okay? And this is the definite statement that not only had Jesus defeated sin, death, and evil by his resurrection, but he also showed his power over his accuser, Satan himself. You see, Satan wanted to destroy God's plan by killing Jesus, not realizing the entire time that that was the very means by which God would have victory over him. There was no other way. In gaining victory, in becoming Christus Victor, as they used to call him in the church, Jesus could then be enthroned as authority above all authorities, spiritual and physical. And in being enthroned, the Father was saying about Jesus this, that he was above all, This is John 3.31. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. What the resurrection accomplished was absolutely victory for the Christian over sin, death, and hell. But guys, those can't be possible individually without Jesus first being enthroned as the authority above all. And in enthroning him, God the Father is proving true to his promise to Abraham. He's proving true to his promise to David. But notice with me the other things in which he is proving true. Remember back with me that we talked about Adam. Adam was supposed to be the vice regent or kind of the, it's kind of like vice principal, right? Or the um, vice president. He was supposed to be the vice regent of earth. He was supposed to act on God's behalf and protect uh, the, the garden and conquer the world on God's behalf. But he failed in that, just like you and I would have. Adam failed in being that vice regent. But by Jesus' sacrificial work on the cross and his resurrection and his enthronement, he now successfully carried off the mission that Adam could not. Being enthroned had to take place or else the mistakes and the the failure of Adam and Eve never would have been restored. And Jesus is now that king who reigns over the world, and right now at this place, he's still at war with the kingdom of darkness, but he is king over his people that sit in the midst of darkness. He reigns through the church in righteousness and justice. And this reigning, guys, this is the gospel that Isaiah spoke of. Look at Isaiah 52, 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. A phrase, good news. In the Greek translation of the Hebrew, because this is a Hebrew text, in the Greek translation of the Hebrew, the Septuagint, good news is translated euangelion. It's where we get the word evangel or evangelism. Who brings the gospel who publishes peace, who brings the gospel, good news, of happiness, who publishes salvation. And what is that salvation that Isaiah cries out to Zion? Not, you are saved from the wrath of God. What does it say? 
your God reigns. Again, guys, I'm not trying to dismiss personal salvation. I'm trying to equal out in our me culture the fact that the good news is both you are saved from your sins and you are in submission to a wonderful king who has established his kingdom. And the reason this is such important news is when I've preached this, people have gotten angry. How dare you relegate my salvation to the same level as God being king? How dare you take away my personal salvation? Guys, no one's trying to take it away. We're trying to frame it in the proper context. You have no salvation if Jesus is not your king. He is not your butler to save you. You are his servant to serve him. The two have to be in place. They have to be in place. And if we don't understand that, we can't understand what Paul is saying here in Ephesians. Because he is the name above every name. Notice what he said to Abraham in Genesis 12, that part I underlined there. I will bless you and make your name great. Man, I wanted to make my name great so bad most of my life. Right? If any of you ever want to see really terrible basketball, I've got the video of when I started in Madison Square Garden on NBC against Meta World Peace. First play out of the gate, I went to dunk on top of him. He blocked me hard. I went to fight him, not knowing he would probably kill me. And that, you know, I wanted to make my name great. I didn't realize in doing so, I was actually making myself extremely small and arrogant. I was raising myself against the truly good name. And the only way for us to make our name great, just like Abram, is to allow ourselves to be in the one whose name is great, Jesus Christ. You want to be lifted up? Humble yourself under the loving care of a wonderful king. Well, we also see in Ephesians 1 the statement that Paul is, uh, he's not just making a quick turn of phrase with this name above all names. He is calling Jesus Yahweh. And this is important. If you're ever talking to someone who doesn't believe in the Trinity, who's part of a cult, this is very important to understand. This idea of the name above all names is super important. In the Old Testament, you will not find the name Yahweh or Jehovah written out. What you will see is the word Lord in all capitals. You guys seen this before? Lord. Well, in the original Hebrew text, that is the tetragrammaton, the name of God. yod heh vav heh okay? Yahweh is where we get that name. And they didn't want to be disrespectful, so what they would do is they'd start to say Adonai or Kyrios in the Greek, which means Lord. They'd say Lord instead of naming his name. And so then they started to write it in. Unfortunately, what this has produced is I've met way too many Christians who have no idea of the name of the God they serve. They think that his name is God. God is just a title, guys. It's like dad. My name is Hans, just like our God's name is Yahweh, who came in the form of his son, Jesus Christ, and empowers us by the Holy Spirit. We serve a Trinitarian God. One of the other things that the Hebrews would do is if they didn't name him Lord, they would call Yahweh Hashem, the name. The name. And so Paul here stating that he is the name above all names, is saying he is Yahweh. Jesus is the anointed Messiah. In Philippians 2, notice what he says here. 
Paul says this to the church of Philippi, therefore God has highly exalted him, Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We all go, yeah, great, Lord. He's Lord. That's his name. No, guys, to say that he's Lord means you fall on your face when he's present. Adonai, Kyrios, Yahweh. Jesus is Lord. God the Father gave him his own name and his own position of power so that he could be above all. Jesus is God. He's Hashem, the name above all other names. And in so doing this, God the Father did one more thing in his most amazing, excellent work. God's power provided victory over evil spiritual powers. God's power provided victory over evil spiritual powers. Now, again, in our Western culture, we think, oh, yeah, evil shmevil, right? You know, we believe in science, right? We're, we're, we're like Escalito on, on Nacho Libre, right? I believe in science, right? We push aside all of this idea that there's spiritual powers, that there's wickedness, that there's a kingdom of darkness. And so for salvation to come, it's not just a matter of pulling us out of an evil world, Much of evangelicalism, that's what we focus on, is how do we get out of this place? But the fact of the matter is the gospel is that God's coming to restore this place. And it's a matter of God putting in place the fullness of his victory over the evil powers and beings that have rebelled against God the Father. In Ephesians 1.22, it says this. It says um, that he has put all things under his feet. Okay? What does that mean? Well, in the days of the kings of Israel, to symbolize victory over your enemies, you would drag them out by the scruff of their neck, throw them on the ground, and stomp on their neck, right? I used to try to do that when I would dunk on people, but I can barely get off the ground now, so I can't do that anymore. But here's the reality of what it meant to them back then. You guys are like, wow, you're such a mean pastor, stomping on people's necks. Then Joshua said, open the mouth of the cave and bring those five kings out to me from the cave. This is from Joshua 10, 24. Open the mouth of the cave and bring those five kings out to me. He defeated them. When they brought those kings out to Joshua, Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with him, come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. Then they came near and put their feet on their necks. Paul is stating from his background of Hebrew knowledge, he's saying, Jesus stepped on the necks of every enemy you have. Now, this was massive to the people of Ephesus because if you remember, they operated in a constant fear that the astral powers, the fates, the other lowercase g gods would affect their lives in a way where they would be destroyed and destitute. So Paul is giving them encouragement saying, guys, you don't have to worry about life because the king of kings has your back and he will step, he has stepped on the necks of the powers that are against you. This doesn't mean life will be perfect, but it means that we serve a God of victory. So the good news is, whether anyone accepts it or not, that Jesus has triumphed over the kingdom of darkness and reestablished God's rightful place of sovereignty over the universe. Go with me to 1 Corinthians 15, and you'll see why this is so important to understand. Go back to the left from Ephesians to 1 Corinthians 15. And look with me at verses 1 through 8. 
Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. So here Paul's going to define for us what the gospel is. Which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. Because we are saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved by the gospel. He says, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are all still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. So if you're going through a membership interview and you come in and Patrick or I ask you, what's the gospel? Just memorize this. There you go. It's easy, right? But here's the problem. We leave out something very important if that's where we stop. Notice that Paul didn't stop there. In your own time, you can go through and read it, but let's just skip down to verse 20 because this is a continuation of his thought, Okay? Verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, that's Adam, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then in his coming those who belong to Christ. That's us. Then comes the end. Notice what he does here. When he, Jesus, delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God the Father has put all things in subjection under Jesus' feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he, the Father, is accepted. He's, he's outside. He doesn't have to be under the feet of Jesus, who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son, Jesus himself, will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under the Father, that God may be all in all. Okay? Now, I emphasize Father and Jesus in there when it's not actually written in there because you needed to understand it. Otherwise, it sounds like a who's on first argument, right? Okay? And so part of what God is doing is not just for me, trying to get us off of the self-focused gospel. The fullness of the gospel is that Jesus is enthroned as king to restore all things under the authority of God. That is the ultimate end, is that God's kingdom is restored. And in so doing, by his gracious gift, he has created a way for us to be reconciled with him so that his kingdom is built and his citizens of his kingdom are us. And so if we look at the gospel in its fullness, the gospel is absolutely the forgiveness that Christ's death brings for each of us. But it's also the establishment of his kingdom in which his law of righteousness and justice reigns. And I am so saddened by why so many people fight that for God to be king is good news. It's almost as if that's a downer when I preach that to most people. Well, I, just talk about me being saved and going to eternal life and getting my mansion. Eh, the king thing. Why? Because if he's king, you're not. And I'm not either. And so God's power has done this work in order to pave the way for that massive, awesome text in Ephesians 2. Well, the last thing that we see here 
is this, that God's power established his sovereignty over his people. God's power established his sovereignty over his people. You can go back with me to Ephesians 1. God's power established his sovereignty over his people. We see there back in Ephesians 1, in verse 22, he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. So Jesus is the ultimate authority, the head of the church. But notice this next part, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, this idea of the head is used here as a picture of authority. Christ is the authority of the church. And I don't know a Christian that would disagree with that statement. But what I want to ask us and what I want to ponder this morning is what does that mean practically for us to submit to the authority of Christ? Well, Paul uses this idea of Christ as the head and plays it out more fully elsewhere. Uh, Just turn a little bit to the right to Ephesians 4 and look at Ephesians 4, 15 through 16. Ephesians 4, 15 through 16. It says, Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. He uses the same idea in uh, the Corinthian church. Um, And again, I think most Christians would probably think, yeah, Jesus is the head, we are the body. But we think about it in such ambiguous terms. We don't think about it practically. But our thoughts on the subject need to come to practical action. Let me show you what I mean. Notice that Paul, go back to Ephesians 1, and notice that Paul calls the body the fullness of him who fills all in all. Okay? Now, I've, I've been going for 45 minutes here, so you're probably a little bit tired. Tune in, because this is going to be really important for you to understand. This word fullness in the Greek is pleroma. And it would take me too long to give you the full definition of this word, but I'm going to give you just a little bit of context so you can understand what he's saying here. And I love it, how Paul is just talking smack to the mystery religions of Ephesus. Okay? In Ephesus and Asia Minor, the churches, or, or the, the people there, were in deep in what were called the mystery religions. Initiates, or people that wanted to step into those religions, they would be given special magical knowledge that would then unite them with the gods, such as Artemis. And Artemis was that goddess with the weird statue that we looked at a few weeks ago. Uh, She's also known as Diana. She's also known as uh, Estarte, uh, where we get the name Easter. A number of other things, okay? And Artemis was, in fact, seen by the Ephesians as head over all the other gods. And this mystery religion was extremely mystical and superstitious. And so Paul, as he's writing to Timothy in Timothy's letters, Timothy was the lead pastor of the church in Ephesus. He says, stay away from that stuff. Don't get into myths and genealogies. Stay away from all that mystical garbage, okay? Now, the structure of this kind of mystery religion looked like this. This would eventually turn into something that's known in history as Gnosticism, but it was way in the early stages, And this was the basic worldview, was that there was an ultimate good God that was separate from everything material and physical. And underneath him, there was this kind of mistake of a God, right? He was an oops. He was what was called the evil demiurge. He was the one that created. And then he created humanity in the created world. But between that evil creator and mankind, there was this space called the heavenlies. 
And in that was the fullness of the spiritual realm, the pleroma. You can go look it up, type it into Wikipedia, pleroma, you'll get this big long article, okay? And this was part of what made up the mystery religion background. One of the rituals in order to connect with the pleroma was to repeat prayers over and over again, the same prayers. And you would, in doing that, you'd repeat the names of gods. Beetlejuice, 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 right? Okay, kind of like that. That was a joke. You guys okay? All right, okay. So, for example, here's a potsherd that they found um, in uh, Ephesus. has the name of five gods on it that you would repeat. Uh, Sambathus, Artemis, Cura, Dionysus, and Demo. And that's how you would become successful. That's how you would have a full life. If you were an athlete, you would wear some of these names or their symbols on your clothing. For example, if you wanted to be successful, uh, you would worship the goddess of victory known as Nike. And you would wear her symbol on yourself while you performed. Okay? It was all magic, and it was weaving its way into Christianity in Ephesus. And half of you right now are going... I'm heretical. I'm wearing Nike right now. No, calm down. It's okay, right? You didn't know. You're fine. Okay. And it's not bad to wear Nike, but realize that's where it came from, right? People would be superstitious, and to be successful, you'd do this. And so what Paul was dealing with by saying this statement that the fullness, the pleroma, the fullness of spirituality is in him who fills all and is in all, in, in all he's saying, church at Ephesus, you worship the name above all names. You don't need to experience the fullness of God in some mystical, transcendental moment of worship where you're repeating a prayer or doing some spiritual activity. You have the fullness of God right in front of you. That's what he's saying. Now let's unpack that for a little bit more. Remember that in the Old Testament, okay, go back with me in your memory banks, Old Testament, Where did the Shekinah glory of God, the physical, tangible, fullness, presence of God dwell for the Hebrew people? The tabernacle and the temple behind the veil. Wow, you guys are Old Testament scholars. This is awesome. Okay. It would dwell there in the tabernacle, the tent. Well, John 1.14 says that the word Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And that's awesome, but here's what we're missing. In the English, that word dwelt is actually the Greek word skenoo, and it means literally he tented amongst us. Jesus became the tabernacle. So just as an Old Testament uh, Lover of Yahweh wanted to go worship him. Where would he go? He'd go to the temple. To say that you worshiped Yahweh and be like, yeah, that temple's a secondary thing. I don't really need it. I'm going to go worship Yahweh someplace else. You couldn't do that. Similarly, when Jesus had the fullness of God, the Shekinah glory of God in him, the Holy Spirit, to say, well, I worship Yahweh and I'm not going to worship Jesus, that's why Jesus called out the Pharisees. You say you love Yahweh, but you don't love me. You're not actually worshiping Yahweh. And so this is what Paul meant talking about Jesus when he said in Colossians 1.19, for in him, Jesus, all the fullness, the pleroma of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now recognize this, God did not make himself totally contained. He didn't like turn into a, a micro machine and hop into Jesus's pocket, Okay. He absolutely was still the God of the universe, fills all in all. But at the same time, the fullness of him that could be experienced in the physical plane was in Jesus. 
But when Christ left, he said that he would send his spirit to dwell where? You guys should be used to this question. Where does his spirit dwell? Inside us, individually and corporately within the church. And so here in Ephesians 1, 22 and 23, he put all things under his feet, gave Jesus his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him, who fills all in all. Now in our screwed up American mind, we think, okay, the church, that's the building, right? That's the place it's like the tabernacle. You've got to go to the church building, an event, in order to experience the fullness of God. That's not what he's saying at all. He's saying that to experience the fullness of God was not just a hope or a mental or emotional understanding. It was a prayer that through the love within the church, that the tangible love between members in the body of Christ would show the love of Christ in its fullness. The way in which we interact with Christ is absolutely personal. Hear me there. It's absolutely personal. But we also are told here, by the word of God, guys, that we experience the fullness of God also through his body, the church. We deny this truth when we say that we love Christ, but we don't show that love to individuals within his body. We deny this truth when we say that we submit to the authority of Christ, but we don't submit to one another as we're commanded to in Ephesians 5.21. Submit to one another. Look, it says, out of reverence for Christ. I submit to Jesus, but I hate the church and I'll never listen to any of them. You can't do that. We deny this truth when we say we are in new covenant relationship with Christ but not in the new covenant relationship with one another. To say that we worship the God of the Bible, but that the church is just an add-on, is like a Jew saying that they could worship Yahweh apart from the temple in which his Shekinah glory dwelt. Do you get that? A Jew could not say, I am a Jew and I worship Yahweh, but the tabernacle, those priests, man, they're just kind of, yeah. The church is Christ's body, and therefore, as we are towards the body, practically, it's also what we are towards Christ spiritually. And I know some of you disagree with me on that point, and you're totally welcome to that disagreement. But I would ask you to search these scriptures. The power of Christ's resurrection brought about his enthronement, his victory, and his established kingdom in which Christ's people dwell. And this kingdom had to be established before we could be invited into it. This kingdom reign of love is what commands our lives as Christians in the here and now. It had to be established before we could even enter into it. For us to understand the statement that Paul will make about our salvation in chapter 2. Look with me in Ephesians 1. Okay, take your eyes and go down the page to Ephesians 2.8. See how it follows in line? For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, It is the gift of God. Verse 9, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. These verses that are so beautiful and wonderful and encouraging and hope-filled, they fall in line of thought with chapter 1 and what we've just covered. For us to understand this statement in chapter 2, we must be grounded first in our understanding of the kingdom of God. Because hear me here, guys. Listen. 
Christ didn't just call us out of sin or God's wrath that came against that sin. He also called us in to his kingdom. If I was Satan and the fullness of Christ on this earth now dwells in Jesus' body, the church, and I knew this, the best way that I could discredit Christ in the hearts and minds of believers and non-believers alike is to discredit the church. So many of you here today, I know your stories. I know the stories of family members and generations past. So many of you have been or are being and maybe even in this church feel like you are being harmed by the body of Christ. Harmed by pastors, maybe even myself, harmed by other church members. And so you've decided that you will never, ever open yourself up to give the local church a place in your heart to that level ever again. Today, I would ask you to reconsider. I would merely ask you to reconsider. Christ's resurrection gives us hope that what was broken can be made new. What was dead can be brought back to life. And because of Christ's spirit that dwells within each one of us, if we lift our eyes from ourselves and work to serve and care for one another, if we stop saying, how does this affect me, but rather, how can I lay my life down for the others, we can practically experience the fullness of the body of Christ in the midst of this church. And so I want to end with two questions. The first one I want to ask you, going into this last week of Advent before Christmas, I want to call all of us to witness the glorious and majestic miracle of Jesus coming in swaddling clothes, wrapped in them, placed in a manger, as a baby, recognizing all the while that this was his destiny, destiny to be king of the universe and king over his kingdom. I want us to witness this glorious miracle because I want us to understand the fullness of what God has done and therefore allow our attitude of thankfulness to be as deep as it possibly can be. As we partake of the meal here in a moment of communion, I want us not to skip past it like I do so often on those Christmas meals, those wonderful dishes. I want us to understand the fullness of what went into that meal. And the second thing I would ask is I want to ask this question. What does this mean practically that I can interact with the fullness of Christ within his body, the church? Some of you might think, I need more than that. Give me some breadcrumbs, right? I want you to wrestle with these two questions this week as you head into Christmas. Is Jesus truly my king, truly our king, what does that mean? And what does it mean practically that I can interact with the fullness of Christ within his body, the church, both locally and globally, both here at Mission and with people that go to other churches? But recognize that God is calling us to work in that practical understanding of the fullness of the body of Christ. Let's consider these things as we leave this place today.